Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, welcome back into the Nick Bob podcast. Got a good pod on deck for you guys today. Got a mailbag dialed up with some fun questions that we will get to. But I want to start with the additions to both uh, for both Creighton and Nebraska over the last few days on the basketball side of things. Let's start with Nebraska. So if you've listened to the last few pods of mine, you've heard me voice my concern for Nebraska's point guard situation for next season. I've been extremely worried about this with a variety of guys coming on visits and then going elsewhere. Well, Nebraska finally got their point guard in the transfer portal this week to uh, commit and then sign on the dotted line. Aaron Euless is the point guard out of the portal that Fred Hoiberg has landed. He is from Iowa, Iowa transfer, six foot three guard. Uh, he's the brother of Tyler Euless, who was a, a, a good player at Kentucky. But Euless has been at Iowa for a handful of years. And this last year, Euless started 27 of the 32 games. Uh, he averaged six points per game, two assists per game. He's got a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio. He's he's not a great shooter. He, he's not terrible. He's a career 31% three-point shooter. But, you know, I've had a couple people tweet at me or ask me, Nick, what do you think of Euless? What do you think of Euless? Here, here's how I, I look at it. It, listen, is Aaron Euless a superstar stud? No, but you can do a lot worse than having having Euless as your starting point guard. He's got he's got some talent. Whenever I've watched him play, I've I've done a handful of Iowa games over the years, so I've studied him on film. I've watched him courtside. I've always thought Euless is solid. But what I like best about this is he's an experienced veteran point guard that's got three years of Big Ten basketball experience under his belt. That is huge. And that is important. He's gone to Purdue and played. He's gone to the Breslin Center and taken on Tom Izzo and Michigan State. Like, he's gone to the rack at Rutgers and played. Like, he's done all of that. Now, again, is he... A superstar stud? No, he's not a superstar stud. The guy only averaged six points per game, right? But I think I think Euless is rock solid. And I tell you what, right now, that's to me, that's what you were kind of looking for. After you maybe missed on a few of your top portal targets. And listen, maybe with a change of scenery, Euless can expand his game even more. Maybe that six points per game can become 10 or 11 points per game. So, all things considered, it's not a bad pickup at all. To me, I've said this, going into next season with a point guard situation of a combination of Sam Hoiberg and Jamarcus Lawrence, it just was not an option. Like, that, that, is, that, that just was not going to work. And now with, with Uless, Nebraska's got a real Big Ten point guard. Again, not a stud, not a star, but a solid player. So, that, that's the first portal pickup. The, the other portal pickup was Josiah Alec, who's Nebraska's finally landed their in-state guy. Josiah Alec is uh, he's a Lincoln native. He went to North Star High School. And Alec's a big is a is kind of a a, a bruising, but he's got some skill. He's a he's a physical big man. 6'8, 235. He spent three years at UMKC. In the Summit League, he was a double-figure scorer there. Last year, he was at New Mexico in the Mountain West. He started all 34 games. The team went 22-12 and 12 and went to the NIT. So he, he was in a tough conference, a real conference. He started every game on a team that was winning. And oh, by the way, he's the older brother of Becca Alec, who's a sophomore on the Nebraska volleyball team. But I think another solid pickup here. I like that he's Nebraska. He's a Nebraska kid. I've told you I've, I think that that kind of matters. And then w- with him specifically, like, like I just said, he was on a winning team. 
That that matters to me too. He started every game on a team that was in the NCAA tournament conversation for portions of the year, went to the NIT. I like that. I value that. I also value that he's an older, experienced guy. Um, spent a couple years at UMKC, spent a year in New Mexico. He's a mature dude that's been through a lot of the the rigors and grinds that that present itself as a Division One basketball player. And the the reality is too, in the Big Ten, as we found out. You need size and beef and toughness in that front line. And you need depth there as well. And Alec is a big, physical, high-motor dude. 6'8", 235. He plays hard. Another guy that is a rock-solid pickup. Like, Alec's got a he's, – he's scored 1,000 points in his career. Like, he's had a nice little career. So, again, is, is Alec, you know, a superstar? No. Is Ulysses a superstar? No. But they're pretty darn good players, man. And I think they're going to be two guys that, to me, you can throw Josiah Alec out there in a Big Ten basketball game, and he is going to do just fine. You can throw Aaron Eulis out there in a Big Ten basketball game, he's going to do just fine because he's already done it. So two, two pretty nice portal pickups for Fred Hoiberg over the last handful of days. And then for Creighton. So Creighton has added two players. Uh, I'm taping this. It's it's Wednesday. It's it's about three thirty in the afternoon, um, May third, and so they're active today. Added two players today. The first one we'll get the 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 more less notable one of the Brock Vice, six ten big man, three star high school kid out of Tennessee. He was signed with St. Louis, but he got out of his his letter of intent reopened his recruitment, and now he is headed to Creighton. So Creighton adds to its frontline depth with a young big. You know, you got Trout, you got Fred King, you got potentially, obviously, Kalkbrenner. You got a handful of big dudes in, in your front line. But the big pickup in terms of who's going to maybe make it the biggest impact next year is the Memphis transfer that Creighton got out of the transfer portal, and that's Jonathan Lawson. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at Lawson, he played at Memphis for one year and he, he's a guy that's got a lot of talent. He only averaged three points per game last year, but, but he's got some talent. He can shoot. He shot 41% from three, but he's got a great basketball body and, and frame six, six long wing, long arms. He's got a seven foot one wingspan. He's a former four-star recruit and a former top 50 recruit, according to ESPN. He was the 47th-ranked player in the country, according to ESPN. He was the Gatorade Player of the Year out of high school in the state of Tennessee. So clearly, this guy's got some talent. And, you know, he was a highly touted dude out of high school. So I think he's got the pieces and the tools and the skills to become a really good player. And Creighton has been pretty dang good at developing and maximizing guys in Omaha that have the ingredients of, of being a good player. And so, you know, I said that I thought Creighton needed a long athletic wing. They needed to go find somebody in the portal, a long athletic wing for some, for lack of a better term, Trey Alexander and Arthur Kaluma insurance, just in case you lose one of or both of those guys. And to me... Lawson kind of fits that. He he kind of fits being a little Kaluma and Alexander Insurance. And so, you know, he's... Uh, listen, I think he's going to play next year. He's going to be in the rotation. Now... Do, do I do I wish it was a more proven commodity that Creighton was able to get out of the portal to throw into the rotation for next year? Sure. But that was going to be tough to find because of the circumstances that is going on with Creighton right now with you, you know the fact that you, you got three guys that have entered the draft but they might come back and Alexander Kalkbrenner and Kaluma. Like it, it's a proven wing in the transfer portal is likely going to a place that has a guaranteed spot and 20 to 30 minutes a game for them. And Creighton right now with, with, with Trey Alexander and Arthur Kaluma still in the equation, they just can't guarantee that. We talked about that with Hunter Salas. So to me, the best Creighton was going to be able to do, given the circumstances, was probably going to be a player like Lawson. 
And I'm not trying to downgrade Lawson. I think Lawson could end up being a big-time player. But I'm talking about just like a dude, a proven commodity. But I, th- I think given the circumstances, a player like Lawson was probably the, the – the, that was the, the pool they were kind of fishing in. Super talented, tons of potential, but not a ton of experience. So all in all, I think it's a pretty good pickup. But if you kind of if you stop and think about the entire picture of things for Creighton right now, you know, we, we went we've gone over this over the last month. I've tried to really kind of be thorough in how you know this this roster situation for Creighton and how it's 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 movement and all that stuff. You know, if you if you stop and think about the big picture, Creighton has had a handful of scholarships to give after the departures of Nemhard and and Sharif Miller, uh, Sharif Mitchell, and Ben Stoltzberg and John Christopoulos. So that those guys went out and then they. The, they brought in now, whether out of the portal of high school, they got Stephen Ashworth out of Utah State, Isaac Trout, obviously Grand Island native who was at Virginia, Jonathan Lawson from Memphis, and then they got the two high school kids, Sterling Knox out of a wing out of Las Vegas, and then the 6'10 big man, Brock Weiss, who's the three-star out of Tennessee. So the, that's what was going out. That's what now what Creighton's got coming in. And obviously, Stephen Ashworth is the is the prize jewel of of what Creighton's been able to do in the in additions to its roster over the last month. The Stephen Ashworth signing is a really really good one. Proven point guard, experienced, check. I like Trout. I do. He can play the four or the five. He's skilled. He can shoot. Local kid out of Grand Island too. Like it. I was hoping after that that Creighton was going to be able to find either a proven wing, which, again, was going to be tough because of the circumstances, like I just said, and then also maybe a combo guard who can slide over and play that point guard spot as well. Because, you know, right now, if Trey Alexander doesn't, if he leaves and doesn't come back, that kind of basically leaves one point guard on the roster in Steven Ashworth. Or maybe they got to lean on true freshman Josiah Dotzler next year in that scenario. Obviously, that's not ideal. But that's not a man, that's not a great point guard picture if Trey Alexander leaves in the moment right now. But now, to be fair, the reality is it's a bad picture in general if Trey Alexander leaves, right? But I'm just focusing on focusing on that point guard spot with with the point I'm trying to make. So I, I was hoping Creighton would find another kind of a hybrid wing combo guard kind of a guy. It's why I wanted Andrew Rohde out of St. Thomas, who ended up going to Virginia. I thought he would have been a really good fit. He can play the point. He's 6'5". He can be, be on the, a play off the ball. I thought the two ideal transfers would have been Ashworth and Rohde or maybe even Ashworth and Hunter Salas. But instead, Creighton gets Stephen Ashworth out of Utah State and then Jonathan Lawson out of Memphis, who is a, a wing. So it's it's that's kind of how everything landed. This, this was always going to be really, really tricky and challenging of a situation for, for Greg McDermott, the coaching staff, to navigate. Because when you, when you have three players, three starters, three studs, the core of your team outside of Baylor Shireman, that could come back or could be gone, it's just so tough to size up the whole situation. Because I've talked about this before. But now that the, the dust is beginning to settle, at least for now, there could be more movement over the next month with the three guys that have entered the draft. But now that the dust is settled in the moment on the new additions to the team for next year on the recruiting trail, the range for how good Creighton's team could be next year is really wide. Return all three studs and your your starting five, have it be Ashworth, Trey Alexander, Baylor Shireman, Arthur Kaluma, and Ryan Kalkbrenner, that's a top 10 team. But you lose all three of the guys that are in the, in, the, in the draft process right now, yikes. You lose two of the three, yikes. Maybe you only lose Arthur Kaluma, which I still think is is the one of the three that are in the in the draft process right now that are most likely to be gone. But if if you lose just him, it hurts but you can maybe survive that if you return Trey Alexander and and Ryan Kalkbrenner. And like I said a second ago, with all that in flux, that means potential scenarios of big-time players, dudes that will play 30 to 35 minutes a game maybe coming back 
adding guys to the team out of the portal was going to be challenging. Because think about it this way. I don't think it's a coincidence that the most proven dude Creighton got out of the transfer portal was for a position that had an opening starting spot and 30 minutes a game available. Of course, I'm talking about Ryan Emhart's departure and landing Stephen Ashworth. It's not a coincidence. So this this is just a really unique point in time for Creighton and its roster for next year. In fact, right now, Creighton's won over the scholarship limit in the moment. Right? You're allowed 13 scholarships. Creighton's at 14. They just have to get to they, they gotta get to 13 scholarships by the fall. So there's some time for this stuff to get for this get sorted out. But if you look at it, the you know, kind of the big the the frontline guys, the fours and the fives, you got Kalkbrenner, Kaluma, Trout, Fred King, Mason Miller, Brock Weiss, and Jason Green. And then your your backcourt, your kind of guards and wings, you got Steven Ashworth, Trey Alexander, Baylor Shireman, Francisco Farabello, Jonathan Lawson, Josiah Dotzler, and then Sterling Knox. That's 14. Now, I'll tell you right now, trying to guess the eight-man rotation within all of that is really challenging. Because if you go, okay, let's assume everyone comes back. I'll go with, obviously, the starters being Stephen Ashworth, Alexander, Baylor Shireman, Kaluma, and Kalkbrenner. And then your bench is probably Lawson and Farabello. And then one of Miller or Trout. And then one of... King or Trout to back up Kalkbrenner. So, listen, man, there's going to be a lot of players battling for the 7th, 8th, and ninth spot in this rotation. We'll be really competitive at practice if everyone comes back. So, we'll see. Things will get sorted out over the next month with the the three studs for, for Creighton, Kaluma, Alexander, and Kalkbrenner in the draft. But certainly some interesting times for Creighton right now. But they pick up Brock Weiss, they pick up Jonathan Lawson, a, a, a very talented dude out of Memphis, out of the transfer portal. So now, now it feels like you're just going to have to sit and wait and kind of see what happens over the next month. Okay, let's get to some some mailbag questions. Put it out on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, at Nick Baugh. Said one of the fire up a mailbag. You can email them. You can tweet at me. Reminder, my email is nick at nickbaugh.com. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, these are some just a variety of of emails and, and tweets. This one's from John Skinner. Said, Nick, do you think Ashworth will be a step up over Ryan Nemhard, a step down, or just different? I think he'll just be different. Th- there are definitely things that Ryan Nemhard can do better than Stephen Ashworth, like push the ball on the open floor. He's way faster with the rock. He He's a better athlete, pick and roll lobs. Um, really, really good at seeing that and making those plays. But there are things that Stephen Ashworth can do better than Ryan Nemhard. The main one being shoot the ball. Stephen Ashworth is an elite three-point shooter. Shot it over 40% and made 111 threes last year. So I can't say for sure it's a step up from Ashworth to Nemhard. For From Nemhard to Ashworth, excuse me. But I also can't say for sure it's a step down either. I just think on paper right now they're 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 different. I'll say this though, I was thinking about this. And you and you guys can, you know, think about it as you're listening to this. Let me pose this hypothetical for you. If you just this past season, if you just swapped Stephen Ashworth out of Utah State and put Ryan Nemhard in Stephen Ashworth's position at Utah State. Could Nemhard have averaged 16 points per game and been the guy, the man, night in and night out in the Mountain West and lead Utah State to a 26-9 record in a 10 seed in the NCAA tournament? You think he could? I, to be honest, I don't think he could. I, I, I lean towards – I doubt it. I don't think so. I just don't think – I don't think Nemhard's built like that because this isn't meant to be necessarily negative on Nemhard. I just don't think that's how Nemhard's built. He's not built to like – carry the load like that he's a great he's a he's an, a pure point guard where he's he needs the dude the right dudes around him and he sets the table and plays off of those other guys but to be the man the focal point of a defensive scouting report night in and night out do I think he could go do that I don't know about that 
I think Steven Ash was a better scorer. So, listen, I don't know exactly what that, that hypothetical question proves, but I think it's an interesting way to frame the two players. But, you know, Nemhard was a baller for Creighton. Ashworth was a baller last year for Utah State. I like that there are things Nemhard can do that Ashworth can't and vice versa. So I can't say it's for sure a step up. Can't say it's for sure a step down. I just think it'll be, it'll be different. Brian emails and says, Nick, loaded question. But what does Nebraska have to do to be good at basketball? And by good, I mean being contending year in and year out to make the NCAA tournament. I get that Nebraska hasn't had much or any basketball history, but I just don't understand how this program continues to be mediocre. Let's say Trev Alberts hired you to be the associate AD for men's basketball. What would you do to try and turn this program around? Okay, man, a lot in there. First of all, I don't want to act like, you know, as I answer this question, I don't want to act like I got all the answers. I don't. This thing is complicated. It's challenging. But with all that said, even though I don't have all the answers, it still doesn't mean that I, I can't say the fact that it's, there is zero excuse for Nebraska basketball's program to be as historically bad as it's been. That's not being a hater. That's just reality. There's no doubt about that. Um, first of all, I do think, I think Fred Hoiberg and his, his, his crew took a step in the right direction this year because I think they finally established a standard. And I, I've talked about that. But to answer Brian's question, like I think you could go like specific with the moment or just broad and big picture overall. For the question, I'm going to go just broad rather than talk about specific things in you know in this time point in time. But if Trev made me the associate AD of basketball and said, Nick, all right, what do you think? What what do you what do you do? As I was reading that question from that email from Brian, I was thinking about a conversation that I had with TJ Otzelberger. This year, TJ Altsberger is the head coach at Iowa State. Um, I was doing Iowa State at Iowa on FS1 this year, and I was at shoot around, and I'm I'm hanging out with with Otz, with Coach Otzelberger, and and we're just chatting. He's been at Iowa State for two years, and he's taken Iowa State to the tournament two straight years, and went to the Sweet 16 last year. But I was talking to him before the game, and I'm picking his brain on his philosophy and his system and his identity and all that stuff. And you know, I'm asking him because he's he's a really physical, get after you defensive program now at Iowa State and I kind of asked about his his philosophy and his system and all that stuff and he said something I think kind of applies to Nebraska he looked at me and he said Nick if you aren't going to get the top players in your conference if you aren't the top program in your league in terms of just having top shelf talent every time you step on the floor you're going to have the more talented roster you better be different different and unique if you're not going to be that top dog. He said, we will never have the players that Kansas or Texas get, so we can't just play them straight up like that. So he's decided at Iowa State he's going to sell out to being an unbelievably tough, physical, aggressive, disruptive defensive-minded team built to turn you over, get up in you, foul you, make it ugly, make it tough. That's how that's going to be the equalizer, equalizer, if you will. And listen, so far it's it's yielded pretty good results. It's worked pretty dang well. And I I I think about that that his answer and his thought and his school of thought and I think it kind of applies to Nebraska. Nebraska basketball year in and year out just isn't going to recruit at the level of Michigan State, Michigan, and Indiana and those teams. So I think Nebraska has to find some way that they are different. Now, what that is, it could be a bunch of different things. But for example, like I thought what Micah Shrewsbury at Penn State did this year was a perfect example of this. He was the most unique team in the conference. His team was built differently. They were unique. They posted their point guard, Jalen Pickett. They'd, he'd, he would take guys into the post and then spread the floor with four three-point shooters, and they would take a million threes. They were second in the country in points from the three-point line. They were top ten in the country in three-point attempts a game. And listen, they made the NCAA tournament. They won an NCAA tournament game. Even a team like, if you think about it, 
even a team like Purdue over the last 15 years or so kind of fits this, right? They've developed a, a unique identity of being big man you. They've kind of become the program associated with great big men, pure centers, Zach Eady, Travion Williams, Isaac Haas, Caleb Swanigan, et cetera, et cetera. So they have that edge of being different and have been successful. So for me, I think it would help Nebraska to find some sort of way to be different, to find some sort of way to be unique. And what's interesting is I actually thought Nebraska was unique this past year, especially down the stretch of the season, like the final month and a half, where they sold out to the five-out stuff, where they have their five-man Derek Walker at the top of the key. He could handle the ball and drive it and pass it. That's unique. They would post Sam Greasel from that point guard spot. Having a 6'6", huge-shouldered, big point guard is unique. Kese Tominaga, his movement off the ball is unique and different. And defensively, not a lot of teams in the Big Ten do the no-middle-defense, full-rotate kind of system. Not It's too complicated to explain on a podcast, but Nebraska – was a little unorthodox with their man-to-man defense and how they, you know, they forced teams baseline. They would, they would, they would attack and and sell out and load up to help and full rotate on the backside. And when they finally settled into all of those things that made them different, they won a lot of games in February. So you kind of get my point. Now, with all that said, everything I'm saying is way easier said than done. Right, like everything I just said, you're probably not like, yeah, that sounds that sounds easy. Well, it's hard. It's hard to find what your special sauce is and what makes unique and your 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 program unique and different, and how you're going to recruit that and how that's going to become an advantage. That's hard because I do think I think Nebraska has, has to find that thing that makes them a little different, and I think Fred has found out. Fred Hoiberg found out in the first two years in Nebraska, if you're just going to roll the ball out and try to play fast and shoot threes and try to outscore people, you better have better players. You better have elite, elite talent. And quite frankly, Nebraska didn't. And if you look back, he had, he being Fred Hoiberg, he had dudes at Iowa State. Dudes. He had pros there. So I think Fred Hoiberg has learned that if he's going to have lesser talent, not trying to be mean here, just being honest here, but if you're not going to have the best players on the floor, you better be different. So I would, to answer the question of the email, I would start from that school of thought. And then you can kind of, you know, then it depends on who your coach is and, and what they specialize in and how you want to build off that and all those sorts of things. But I, I, I think that's the, Nebraska's got to find whatever that is. That's how I would answer it. Next question is from Kevin McKenna, Coach McKenna. He was a Creighton star back in the day, played in the NBA. He was an assistant coach at Creighton, head coach at UNO. Now he's an assistant. He was a head coach at uh, at Indiana State. Now he's an assistant coach at Oregon. He was a, an assistant when I was at Creighton. He's a great guy. But he tweets at me, he said, Creighton road trips back in the day, Arby's, Wendy's, or Golden Corral for food. Who you got? Hello. <laughs> Come on. We yeah, It's amazing. We ate so terrible on the road back in the day. We'd go on the road for a road game. We'd eat like an Egg McMuffin for McDonald's for breakfast, an Arby's roast beef sandwich for pregame, and then go play a college basketball game. It is amazing how much, how far nutrition and, I guess, budgets to a certain degree have come. But I got to say, I'll say I'll say Golden Corral just because of the sentimental value of it and just how much Coach Altman loved it and, and because of just how much I felt duped the first road trip I went on. You know, we're... We're getting ready to load the bus and or, or load the plane, and coach is like, all right, fellas, we're going to get into town. We'll go to the arena, fellas. We'll do a walkthrough, walk through some things, and we'll go grab a steak. Go grab a steak, fellas. I was like, okay, we're about to, okay, go through a little, little walkthrough and then go to a steakhouse. It's going to be a nice little night. Let's do this. Well, we, you know, we go to the arena, we go through the walkthrough, and then we pull up to a golden corral. And I'm like, whoa, What? A golden corral. It's like, yeah, there's a steak there. You get steak. I'm like, oh, God. Okay. A little misleading there. Also, the hilarious thing 
with what we would be like on the road back in the day and in the mid 2000s when we were in the Missouri Valley Conference and all that stuff was when we were on the road for for most trips we wouldn't have a bus we would rent like five minivans and load into them yeah like we would fly to like you know Evansville or something like that and then we would all we'd we'd have rent there'd be like five Dodge caravans waiting for us and we'd all get we'd get into these van and that's how we'd we'd get around town. We'd like we'd show up to a game at like northern Iowa or whatever in like in like f- five minivans. Can you believe that? We did I got didn't have a huge budget back in the day. But I think you do save a lot of money by not renting a a a, a bus or whatever, but I always felt like Coach Altman was a guy who came from from JUCO, Muberly Junior College, and I've always kind of felt like you can take the, the the coach out of JUCO, but it's hard to take the JUCO out of the coach. And those JUCO coaches, man, they got no budget. They're looking to save money any way they can. They can't spend money. So I always felt like the minivans were were a shining example of that. But the minivans were ridiculous to me. I once had to drive one on the road because a coach had to go recruit and do something, and Coach Altman was like, Bah, you're not an idiot. You drive one. I'm like, this seems not right at all. Dan, next question. Dan says, Nick, why did Hunter Salas struggle at Gonzaga and what led him to Wake Forest and will he be successful there? So, you know, first of all, in terms of why did he struggle at Gonzaga? I mean, Hunter Salas had, t- had talented dudes around him and ahead of him. So, you know, it's not like he had a bunch of Ollie from Hoosiers playing in front of him or whatever like that. Like, he, he had good players playing in front of him. I also think the COVID year for certain guys staying an extra year probably made it tough. But for me, and I've talked about this, with why I maybe struggled, two things. Number one, Hunter Salas got caught in that bench world that can be tough. Some games you play 23 minutes and you get eight or nine shots. Some games you play 11 minutes and you take one or two shots. It's really hard to settle in, feel good about what's going to happen when it, when you don't know how many minutes, how many shots you're going to get. I lived in that world when you're, walk, when you're lacing your sneakers up for the game and you're like, man, I don't know, tonight might be a night I get 26 minutes and I get, I'm going to get... 10 shots, or tonight I might play nine minutes and not take a shot. That's a hard world to be in. So that was number one. And then number two, I've always felt like at certain top programs, whether it's Texas, Kansas, Gonzaga, whatever, if you don't, if you don't establish yourself early at a program and carve out your, like, this, these are, this is my, my role, this is what I do, and I'm going to expand it. If you don't establish yourself early at a program like that, that's always kind of reloading with top shelf guys, it, you can get lost in the shuffle a bit. And I think that maybe happened too. So that's how I'd explain the situation around him at Gonzaga. But with Hall- with Hunter Salas himself, like I always thought Salas was an interesting player. Because I always thought he was an interesting player and in that I've always viewed him as more of like a jack of all, master of none type of player rather than being like elite at one specific thing. Meaning, like, whenever I've watched Salas play, he's solid at about everything. But he's not really great at one specific thing. He's a good scorer. I don't think he's a great one. He's an okay shooter. He's not a great shooter. He's a, he's a good passer. He's not a great one. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's a really good athlete. You know, is he a freaky deaky athlete? I don't know if he's a freaky athlete. So there isn't that one main thing that is just undeniably elite that it's like you got to get him out there because he can do blank. And I think that maybe was kind of something that was interesting for him in in kind of how he's built as a player. As far as Wake Forest goes, Steve Forbes is a head coach there. I think uh, Steve Forbes is a really good coach. Um and Wake Forest under Forbes, they've done a good job the last couple of years with with a few guards out of the portal and coming to Wake Forest and balling out. Tyree Appleby, that he transferred to Wake Forest this past year, blew up to 18 points per game, was now on you know the draft radar. Uh, Jake Laravia, he he transferred to Wake Forest last year and had a, a and, and had a great season, and he was the 19th pick in the draft this past year. So like. I think the track record combined the track record of transfer guys coming in, balling out, and and getting on that draft radar combined with the ACC as well, right? Hey, you can play Duke, you can play North Carolina, 
I, I, my guess is that would be a, that was attractive to him. Husker Fan Man 07 on Twitter says, how many draft picks should Nebraska have next season to show progress? With Scott Frost guys, we barely had any guys drafted. Okay. I, I would answer that question. I don't think it's really about draft picks to show progress. It's about wins to show progress in the short term, in my opinion. That's how I view it. Like, to me, it's more about, like, I'm going to gauge progress on Nebraska getting to a bowl game next year rather than how many guys get drafted next year. So I, I, that's not really the the barometer or the, that, that's not how, I, that's not the measuring stick at which I'm using for, for progress with, with Matt Rule in the short term. But I will say this. I do love, I love how Rule is utilizing his time in the NFL to Carolina Panthers and that NFL draft as a major carrot to dangle in recruiting. Because I'm sure if you're like me, you've listened to him talk a lot and he has kind of certain things that he goes to over and over again. But he's used, I've heard him use this this line and this this thought of, if you want to be a lawyer, you go to law school. If you want to be a doctor, you go to medical school. If you want to go to the NFL, you should come to Nebraska. That's been his one of his things he says a lot. And the reason he uses that line is because he tells these recruits and these and these people, I've been in those draft rooms. I know what those draft conversations with GMs and scouts and head coaches and owners, I know what those conversations and evaluations look like. I know what they're saying behind those closed doors, what they're looking for. And so guess what? I know how to get you there. That's a pretty powerful thing, right? And I think that combined with just the pure fact that he was a head coach in the NFL is, you know, those are two really good feathers to to have in your cap and and sh- and you got to show off and talk about it. So I think it's smart. And you know, right wrong whatever you think, using the NFL or or NBA is a great thing in recruiting. And you know, I think I think Matt Rule is doing it right. And I think I I think you'll eventually get there where guys are getting back to the to the to the pros, but I, I I don't think about that next year. I think it's more about wins, getting to a bowl game, than it is draft picks to show progress. So to me, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's not what Husker fan man wanted to like. I don't. I don't view it as. I don't know if. I guess if if they get to the draft next year and there are a bunch of Nebraska guys in the draft, I'm not going to be like, wow, rule. I don't know about this. No, I mean you got to give them time to be able to develop pros, I suppose. Now I will say to the overall spirit of the question. Nebraska does have to get back to where they are producing NFL players on a regular basis, because the NFL drought and struggles correlating to the on-field str- on the field struggles is a real thing. Because you know to have the worst decade of Nebraska football in you know sixty years, to have it also coincide with a decade-plus-long drought of first-round NFL draft picks is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Coaching matters. I do think the the instability at Nebraska, all the different head coaches, all the different systems, all the different coordinators, I think all that is hurt. But sure, stability makes a difference. Coaching makes a difference. But talent matters too. Talent matters too. Danny emails. That might be on Twitter. I think it was on Twitter. Yep, it's on Twitter. In my opinion, Husker legends are the guys who put the team on their back and made plays to help us win games that we would have lost without them on the field that day, i.e. Amir Abdullah and Levante David. Are there any players from the Frost era that will be remembered as great ones? I mean, short answer, no. I don't think so. I mean, didn't go to a bowl game for five years. That doesn't mean there weren't some good players, right? Like, you know, Trey Palmer's a good player. I think he was the guy that was maybe arguably the closest to being a real, true, game-changing player in the Frost era. But the reality is, I don't think anyone in the past five years will be remembered as a great one. Do you? I mean, who's... Like, JoJo Doman was a, a good... Uh, he was a fine player. Cam Jurgens, I think, is going to end up being a pretty good pro. 
You know, I mean, Adrian Martinez, he was always a guy that couldn't win the big one or just win, you know, win a close game. But this, you know, it's funny. This speaks to a larger point that I that I've really come to realize as I get older and, and consuming sports. And it's something that I always want to relay to younger players in high school and even college players, especially when they get into college. Every young player, and by young player, I mean high school or college. Every young player is totally caught up in themselves and their stats and their numbers. And what I want to tell all those guys, all those young players, is, hey, excuse the language, but listen, nobody gives a fuck about your 14 points per game if you didn't win. Sorry to be harsh, but it's true. And as you get older, you realize all that matters is, did you win? That's it. Because when you get to be my age, I'm turning 39 in, in about 10 days. So when you get to be my age and you're talking to someone at the age of 40 and it comes up that you played, nobody cares that you had six 100-yard rushing games when I was a junior. They care if your team won. Average 11 points per game. Oh, yeah? Did you win? No. Oh, okay. And that's a really awkward thing. Like, uh, I, I, my team stunk, but I scored. And every summer, I, every summer, I'm reminded of this when I. So I broadcast the the boys in high school girls all star game on NET. Uh, the boys in high school, the boys and girls high school all star game for the state of Nebraska players. And so I've been doing this for over ten years. And so every year I get a new crop of of high school all stars. And so when I get sent their bios. Right, like their accomplishments, their stats, their records, their, all this stuff. And so I see all their bios, I read all their bios. And every year, there are new all-time leading scores, and and records being broken. And one of my takes, as I've gotten older, and even this little like anecdotal moment for me as I do this All-Star game. One of my takes is, man, numbers come and go, records will fall, and every year there's a new leading scorer on a team that averages 14, 15, 18 points per game. Numbers come and go. But winning doesn't fade. Winning sticks, and winning is what stands the test of time. So to tie it back to the question, unfortunately, when your team didn't win, Good luck being remembered as a great one. And I hate how harsh I sounded with that answer, but that's just the truth, and that's kind of where I'm at with it mentally. Now, to be way too honest with you guys, some of this is maybe deep-rooted for me personally and my own, in particular, high school career. There's a version of my high school career where I am on the short list of best high school basketball players of the past 20 to 30 years. I had three cracks at winning a state title. 2001, upset in the quarterfinals, was the number one team in the state, finished ranked number one in the paper, even though we didn't win. We were way better than everybody. 2002, lost in the state championship game. 2003, lost in the state championship game. That's my sophomore, junior, senior year. Like, I could have and probably should have won three straight state titles. But instead, I won zero. So guess what? When all-time great high school player lists come out in the state of Nebraska, I'm typically not on that first draft of it. And the reason why is because I didn't win. That's just how it works. Because I didn't win, nobody cares about my stats or or numbers or records or any of that shit. It's all rendered irrelevant. I had I had three cracks. They, all, then then it would matter if I if I had three rings, then it would maybe matter. But instead, got other than my wedding ring, I got no rings on my fingers from from high school in hoops. I didn't win a title. Oftentimes, right or wrong, that's just how this thing works. Okay, sorry for the rant. Scott, 
says, Nick, why did a starting point guard leave an Elite Eight team? What is going on behind the scenes at Creighton he didn't like? Well, listen, you have to ask Ryan Nemhard that. Um, I, I, pres- I don't think anything's wrong behind the scenes. This is just the new reality we are in with college sports. Dudes leave. Dudes transfer. The portal is a real thing. Sometimes these guys transfer and chase an NIL bag of money. Just because someone leaves and transfers doesn't necessarily mean something is wrong. But it's funny. It's all how you want to view it and and your point of your your perspective on it. When a starting point guard on an elite eight team transfers, my first thought isn't, man, what's wrong with that program? It's, man, what's wrong with that player? But that's just me. Meg says, Nick, I have a question about NIL money and Ryan Nemhard. Many have, have suggested the biggest reason he transferred was NIL money, but I thought athletes who were not from the United States could not earn NIL money except when they are in their home country. Can you explain that piece? Yes, yeah, so obviously, uh, Nemhart's from Canada, um, but it's a good question, Meg, and it's funny you, you asked that question because this, this past year, I was talking to a couple of college assistant coaches, and I raised that question, I, I, or, and, and that I said, you know, hey, this player can't get NIL money because they aren't from the U.S. And both coaches kind of immediately laughed at me and said, oh, yes, they can. I said, oh, really? They said, there are ways for the money to get where it needs to get to. And I left it at that. I didn't dig any further than that in terms of the mechanism of how that gets executed. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, and I just don't want to know. And I don't, you know, you don't know where the line is on like too personal of a question, right? You also don't want people to tell on themselves, right? Because clearly these coaches know. The two coaches that I was talking to, they knew like how how it works. But apparently it, it's that's how it works. So the answer to answer your question, Meg, there are apparently ways to funnel the money to a place to where it needs to get to. How that happens, I don't know. Next question uh, is from Nick. What Creighton players are the most likely and least likely to return following the draft evaluation? Well, I've talked a, a pretty good amount uh, about, uh, about this. I think the two most likely players to come back are, are Trey Alexander and Ryan Kalkbrenner. But, you know, whenever I say that, what's weird is I think Trey Alexander would probably get the best draft eval in the moment. I think he's maybe the most NBA ready. But I think it's more about liking, liking it at Creighton and wanting – to a potentially improve their stock even more by by staying in college another year. Plus, they got NIL deals, right? They're getting paid. I think Kaluma's the least likely to come back. My read is he's ready to kind of turn the page and start his pro career. So my guess is Trey Alexander and Kalkbrenner are the most likely to, to come back. Kaluma's the least likely to come back. Ed says, Nick, do you ever foresee the NCAA mandating NIL be public, a.k.a. amounts and basic terms published? Wouldn't it bring better transparency akin to how pro leagues do it? Well, I mean, I've talked talked about that from the beginning stages of this NIL maiden voyage into college sports. I've thought from the start with all of this, that you need to have some sort of transparency and some sort of guidelines and parameters with all of this stuff. Because there is a re- he brings up pro leagues. That was what, what Ed sent his question. He brings up pro leagues. Well, there's a reason that 99% of professional sports leagues have salary caps, contract guidelines and parameters, salary structures. And that reason is competitive balance. Because, you know, what unregulated NIL creates is a sports league with no salary cap and no contract parameters and guidelines. And in the long term, I don't think that's good for the sport or sports in this instance. We're talking about football and basketball, major football and basketball. But, you know, what's hard is we are inching dangerously close to this whole thing, you know, of what Ed's asking and what I'm talking about, we are we are inching dangerously close to this this whole thing being unveiled and called professional sports, which I know is basically what it already is. But but the thing is, sometimes just labeling it that changes everything. 
or acting like that changes everything. Because once it fully becomes that, then you up and open up a whole Pandora's box of things. Taxes, revenue distribution, players' use unions, collective bargaining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So right now, college sports is, is somewhat of a weird spot with all that stuff. Because it's like they need it, but they know if they if need it by being like, you know, some some structure, some some guidelines or parameters. So they, they need it, but if you if you actually go there, now all of a sudden you're opening up a whole bunch of other things. You know, there's Title IX that's involved in all this. Like there's a lot of other things that happen when you go there. But to circle back to Ed's questions, yes, it would be in everyone's best interest, mainly the sport at large, to have some transparency parameters and guidelines on NIL, in my opinion. Adam asks, if Creighton loses Kalkbrenner, Trey Alexander, and Arthur Kaluma, who does Greg McDermott go for in the portal? See, and that's the tough thing, Adam. The timing would make this extremely difficult to add anyone of substance if they lost those players at the end of May, which is the timeline of this thing. You know, your, your timeline of events, you have till May 31st is the NCAA early entry withdrawal deadline. You know, so you got about the, uh, till the end of the month. But the timing of it makes it tough because by then, most likely, the portal is going to be dried up with true difference-making players that you can go add. So that's what makes this situation tough for Creighton. If they lose Kalkbrenner, they lose Trey Alexander, they lose Arthur Kaluma to the draft or whatever in the next month, they aren't going to be able to just go into the portal and find a sufficient replacement like, say, they did with Stephen Ashworth replacing Ryan Nembhard. So, I don't know. Now, I mean, maybe if someone comes out of the – if maybe if a big spot opens up like that, Kalkbrenner leaves, maybe that would cause someone to, to leave. and you, I don't know. But the timing of it make it really, really challenging. You just better hope Kalkbrenner, Trey Alexander, those guys, some of those guys come back if you're a Creighton fan. Tough circumstances, no doubt about it. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Some good questions. You can always email me, nick at nickbaugh.com. Follow me on Twitter, uh, at Nick Baugh. Appreciate all the love and support. Shout out to Pella. Shout out to Runza for supporting the podcast. We'll catch you next time on the Nick Baugh Podcast. A Heard at Sports Network production.